when we wake up on the first morning of a residential retreat and everything is a bit off. Suddenly we have roommates. Suddenly we're not in a world where people are talking. We're eating weird food for breakfast. We're sitting in a hall next to people we don't know. So it might be one of those times in life where we actually ask ourselves, how did I get here? And generally what happens is the cognitive, rational, thought-based, narrative mind kicks in. And we immediately try to fit an experience into the story of our lives that we've been uh, unfolding and updating the narrative of who I am. Oh, that's right. I'm so-and-so. I've got such-and-such skills, such-and-such issues. (laughs) I'm a clever, neurotic, Buddhist teacher here again at a retreat outside of the city. So you probably have your own story of your journey and when new experiences occur what we do is we begin to try to fit the experience into this narrative, this tale we've been telling. And uh, the nature of this kind of fitting everything into a story in language with ideas is of course it is the part of the mind if you're a neuro geek like me, you'll recognize using left hemisphere of the brain, ventral medial, and uh, other regions like Wernicke's and Broca's to create this story. We're using a very small portion of the brain and relying on it to make sense of life, to calm us when we feel in a situation that we don't know that well, to alleviate concerns, to create a sense of purpose, something to rely upon when things in life for a moment seem odd or don't make sense the conscious mind which in adult life is very aligned with this language-based cognition becomes activated, upset. What's going on here? What am I doing? This isn't the same as every other day. Where strange things happen in life and we try to fit the strange things into a story that we can feel comforted by or at least identify something that's missing from our life that we need to get so that we can deal with all the new information and challenges in our life. So very much not only in this part of the mind that tries to make sense of life, there's this underlying sense that arises that there's something missing. I don't have something. If I got that thing that I'm missing, 
I wouldn't ever feel anxious, confused, sad, uh, lost. So I must be here in this setting to get something, some bit of wisdom, some bit of information. And if there is anything that's missing, it's not more thought, more ideas, more meaning, more things. But along the journey of adult life, we lose over time the ability to integrate what could be called the heart into our rational quests for achievement in the world. So what do I mean by the heart? If I was going to get clinical, I could simply say all the parts of the mind that are non-verbal that lay with the right hemisphere, the midbrain. The parts of our experience that don't present themselves as inner chatter, that don't fixate on things in the distance that we want to acquire, that don't tell a story about what's missing or what we have to achieve, but an entirely different quality of the mind that speaks to us through feelings in the body, through the breath, through the quality of attention, whether it's jumpy or spacious and open, through our emotions. It's interesting that in our first three years of life, this is how we connect and explore the world and make sense. When children are in the pre-verbal years of life, they connect and they live entirely in the right hemisphere and they express their experience to their caretakers by crying, or laughing, or giggling, or stomping their feet by states of agitation, states of fear. All of these emotions are the original way that we try to make sense of life and establish some kind of security. And then, when we're around three and a half or four, we begin the transition from the right hemisphere to the left hemisphere and words and ideas and their chatter and images, narratives become the dominant way we understand our lives and the emotions and the feelings are pushed into what's called the unconscious. Some people use the word implicit all the things that are going on slightly beneath the surface of your awareness. And so for the rest of our adult life, very often our emotions and our feelings are trying to get our attention. We can live pushing ourselves to achieve things in the world, pushing ourselves to get places, to accomplish things, to worrying about how we'll pay the rent for the next 45 years. And in the meanwhile, the felt experience of being alive in a body, the felt feelings about how connected we feel to other people, how safe we feel in our lives, all the emotional quality of our experience gets relegated as 
something at best that is inconvenient and we don't really want to attend to. It's perhaps for this very reason that in all of the Buddhist teachings of mindfulness he flips the hierarchy of awareness on its head. And in every important teaching on mindfulness the emphasis is on always starting each moment with the body and with the breath. So instead of as we emerge into a new moment, a new experience, here I am on this retreat, what the hell am I doing here? The practice is at first to simply always check in from the ground of experience and existence which is what is happening in the breath, in the body. If we think about it in all the most important decisions or choices we make in life, when we relate these experiences to friends, we are very comfortable in telling our friends all about the thinking that went into a decision but very few of us would be able to report, oh yeah, when I bought that, that car, my breath was very smooth. <laughs> <laughs> I found myself around that uh, Audi breathing in a comfortable way, and I knew it was the car for me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, the very first foundation. Always going back to what is the breath like right now. And the second foundation is feelings. Which in the Buddhist landscape is simply that sense of do I like this moment? Am I comfortable in this moment? Or am I uncomfortable in this moment? It's a simple feeling of, I want more of this, or I don't want any more of this. That when you meet somebody new, when you're in a new situation, when you have your breakfast and there's kimchi out, do I want that kimchi? Do I not want that kimchi? How does it feel to see all these people sitting and eating oatmeal in silence. Feelings speak to us both through the body and the mind. When we like an experience, the body softens and relaxes and the mind settles. When we're uncomfortable, the body tightens, it becomes armored, and very often the mind becomes that energy of, go away, I don't want this anymore. The feeling when you really want to leave a party, you're tired of being there, you want to go home. So that's the second, what we check in, just how do I feel? Am I comfortable? Am I uncomfortable? And then the third foundation we go to is the emotional mind, the non-verbal mind. The mind that is either anxious, sad, heavy, upset, or is my mind joyous? Is it spacious? Or am I contracted in my mind and fixated on that roommate who snores or that person's 
three cushions away from me, he shuffles. A simple way to ask is simply, does the mind feel settled and open and spacious, or is there agitation and jumpiness? And finally, after we go through that whole series of how does the breath and the body feel? What feeling tones or do I feel comfortable or uncomfortable in this moment? And what states of mood and attention are present in my non-verbal experience outside of all that language and all that thought? Finally, then, we look at the quality of our thoughts, but not climbing into our thoughts like we normally do and living in them and drifting away from the present, but observing the thoughts from the outside, asking, what are these thoughts like? Are these the kind of thoughts that somebody in the street walked up to me and started telling me would I trust these thoughts? Hey, this was a mistake going on this retreat. What the, what the hell were you thinking? You'll never be able to spend two days. You've got no right to be here. This is weird anyway. Hey, did I remind you that you shouldn't be here? We just need our first excuse to get the hell out of here. Or, this is great. I'm the greatest meditator of them all. (laughs) (laughs) Or hopefully somewhere in between those two extremes. Our thoughts are like, my teacher Tanjak calls thoughts like kidnappers. They come up, they might even at first present themselves as friends, but the next thing you know you've got a hood over you and you're being whisked away from one Dharma center and you're back in an argument with a boss that happened three weeks ago, a roommate or a friend or a parent or a a concern that has absolutely nothing you can do about. You've been kidnapped. So the first of two general ways we can explore our experience in terms of the body, in terms of feelings, in terms of emotions, and even looking at thoughts finally from the outside rather than identifying with them and losing touch with what's going on in our present lives, is two ways. The first is by using what's called an anchor. An anchor is an object, a sensation that you keep in mind, and it gives you a foothold, a reference point, that you can use to find a sense of centeredness in your life, a sense of security, a sense of safety, a sense of uh, being, something that helps you unpack every moment and find a place to observe life from. So this anchor, it can be many different things. The Buddha listed 42 different anchors we can use. But perhaps the most familiar will, of course, be the feeling of breathing. Knowing whether in any given moment you're breathing in or out, whether the breaths are long or short. Knowing whether you're breathing in or out has the purpose of simply grounding you to the present. So it's like an anchor of a ship. It keeps your mind 
from drifting too far away into a fantasy, a memory, a fear, a plan, a concern. So long as you know, oh, right now I'm breathing out or I'm pausing in between an out-breath and the next in-breath, or I'm breathing in. You can't be wholly consumed by a thought. You can't be lost in thought. You don't need to push things away when you have the breath in mind. You just keep enough of the sensations of your breath in your awareness that you can't get fully consumed by your thoughts. That's all we need to do. Now, the other part of the equation is, am I breathing in long or short? This is kind of like the way the breath can control, as we'll see, so much of our experience. When we find ourselves in an interaction in life or in a situation where we're anxious, our tendency is to try to change the world around us to get rid of the anxiety. So if you're in a situation where you feel uncomfortable, you might want to leave. You might want to run away. You might want to change something about the world. But there's another entire approach to being alive and finding peace that doesn't always require changing the people, the places, the things around us, avoiding what makes us uncomfortable and gravitating towards what is pleasurable immediately. And that's to use our internal experience and adjust it so that we can actually deactivate our anxiety, our sadness, our fear to a certain extent, our stress. So in this knowing whether you're breathing long or short, this is essentially being aware of the two qualities of the breath that can change your emotional and feeling states in any given moment. When you breathe out in a very long, smooth out-breath, it tones what's known as the vagal vagus nerve, which sends a nice little signal up through your insula, which then talks to your amygdala. And what does it say? It says, I don't know what you're so upset about. We're not under any panic or threat. Nobody's about to eat us. Nothing's going on here. And then the amygdala, which has probably been activated by thought to fear or get upset, begins to relax. So in any given moment of this retreat, if you want to relieve any anxiety, stress, panic, any activated, agitated state in the mind, the first stop is, can I lengthen and smooth the out-breath? A good rule of thumb is trying to make the out-breath at least twice as long as the in-breath. Now, just as we need to tranquilize at times the mind, to add calm. There's also times in this wonderful experience where you'll find yourself drowsy. Oh, another sit. Another time to sit and just be quiet. And you'll find the mind beginning to drift off into a tired state, to sleepiness. And that's where the quick-held in-breath You do that, you're informing 
the midbrain, I need a little bit more of that uh, adrenaline, a nice little dose of acetylcholine, please. That's the neurotransmitter coffee. So think of your mind as a video game. And the point of the video game is not to get too agitated and anxious, or on the opposite extreme, too tired and unconscious. And anything else in between is fine. So at the very basic controls you have of your Space Invader game, your mind has two basic video controls. Long breath, ease, short, fast, in-breath, held for several beats before release, invigoration. Now, as the Buddha goes on in working with anchors, he talks about once you develop this very basic skill, see if you can spread the breath, the sensations of the breath, all the way through your body, and using these two controlling devices, in, out, out long for ease, in, fast and held for adding energy, See if you can spread ease or energy through your entire body. And then we use the breath to note our feelings. At this moment, do I feel a sense of discomfort? Is that the feeling? And if so, again, using the breath, finding the discomfort in the body. For instance, when I'm anxious, I feel it in my shoulders, and then what I'll do is I'll breathe into that area, almost I'll try to feel, what would it feel like if I could breathe into the shoulders and soften the muscles? Very often I feel fear in my belly, so I'll breathe, focusing on the sensations of the out-breath, softening the belly. Loneliness, top of the chest, really breathing in a way that stretches and soothes the chest. Eventually we can Note the presence of emotions beyond comfort and discomfort of feelings. Emotions are sadness, frustration, anger, disappointment, loss, grief, excitement, joy, love, hate. And in this case, we don't use the breath to get rid of emotions, but simply to soften the body in a way that we can hold our emotions without being overwhelmed. Emotions are largely experiences because they arise so much as physical contractions in the front of the body and heaviness in the mind and scattered images that emotions can feel scary and overwhelming. So what we use the breath for is to soften the body and create a soft, pliant, safe container to feel that tightness in the belly, that contraction in the chest, that strangled feeling in the throat, that anxious jumpy feeling. Whatever needs to be felt, we soften and we use the breath to calm as much as possible so that we can turn and hold. And finally, last, and you don't even need to do this today unless you want to, when you've done that journey through the body 
through feelings, through the emotional experience. You can use the breath as a platform from which to view the thoughts that are narrating your experience and trying to scream its message that it wants you to hear. The cognitive mind doesn't like losing its soapbox and have us become aware of all those emotions and feelings and body states and breath that we spend so much of our life pushing away and on our laptops and phones and work life I don't want to know all that and when you start to reacquaint yourself and reconnect with all of those messages your emotional mind has been sending you I'm unhappy, I'm happy, I'm anxious I'm not anxious, I'm sad, frightened, whatever. The narrative mind isn't happy about this at all. It wants you back. It wants you to return back home to live entirely in the disembodied, thought-based stories about our lives. And when that happens, you stay with the breath and you just observe how many thoughts arise and pass, how insistent they are, how they speak to you, are they friendly or denigrating? Would you trust this voice if somebody else said it to you? You're using the breath, knowing whether you're breathing in or out, as a way to be with the thoughts, but not climb into them and let them pull you away haul you off somewhere else. Nor do we use the breath to push and bury and repress the thoughts. We simply note them. There they are. A whole parade of ideas seeking my attention. And what's the gist of what they have to say? So that's the essence of concentration. And you could do that entire practice without the breath. You could do it with metta that Melissa introduced last night. You could simply use the phrase of metta, the phrases, and in the way you repeat them and in the very simple phrases you use, you could calm the breath, calm, gladden the mind and feelings. You could use metta as a way to get a foothold outside of thoughts and just observe the thoughts. Do these thoughts align with these metta phrases? Do these thoughts convey compassion or kindness? You could do this practice standing outside, observing the beautiful colors that surround us and the feel of the cold, brisk wind. That could be your foothold. You could do this practice walking, just knowing when am I on my left foot, when am I on my right foot. That's the same as knowing whether I'm breathing in or breathing out. And as you walk, change slightly the pace, a little faster to invigorate the mind, change feelings, or a little slower to bring calm, to the mind, to bring calm to the feeling. So if this is your first retreat, I really urge you to spend a full day at least working, using an anchor, the breath, body sensations, metta, sounds, and just Use it as a way to make sure you don't get swallowed up by the narrative. You don't get pulled away by the thoughts. And you use the breath as a way to investigate again and again and again life. Life not from the perspective of how it fits into your story, fits into the plot, but simply how does life feel right now? Again and again and again. Now, for those of you who have been 
on several retreats. You could use a practice that we call RAIN. It was actually developed by one of Melissa's teachers, Michelle. It was popularized by a wonderful teacher named Tara Brock. It's a very wonderful simplification of turning to experience without using an anchor, without using the breath, without using sounds or anything you keep constant in your mind. So, the virtue of RAIN, when we don't keep the breath or a concentration anchor always present, is that rather than using the breath as a way to constantly soften experience, we have a much more direct encounter with our emotions and our feelings. Concentration, using the breath, using metta, is a wonderful way to calm or invigorate, but it can, over long periods of time, it can eventually turn into what's called a spiritual bypass. A way to avoid really deeply touching and knowing the emotions that have been seeking our attention for so long. Sometimes for decades. If you're in, again, the first retreat, if you do rain, I would recommend doing it on the second day. First, always, before you move into an open field of awareness, always learn how to keep the breath in mind, how to return to an anchor. Because sometimes in life, Emotions can be very strong. And if you don't know how to back off and return to an anchor that's safe and secure, the emotions, the experience can be challenging to the degree that we'll want to seek the addictive shelter of our fantasies and our thoughts, or once again our stories, oh, I shouldn't be here, I've made a mistake or I can't wait till I get to do this in the future. And really what we want to do is rather than seeking the shelter of imagination and fantasy, is to return to the actual sensations that are present. So knowing how to do that, knowing how to find your concentration anchor, whether it's metta or the breath, or sounds, or any other object you choose. That's key. But if you do want to then, after a long period, and you're ready to let go of the anchor and just allow your awareness to float like a boat that's pulled off its anchor and is now floating free, and your mind is now floating amidst all the sensations that are happening right here and right now. There are sounds going on. There are feelings of contact with the ground that you're sitting on. There's the feel of your clothes. Do you feel hot or cold? Do you feel tired or over-caffeinated? Or do you feel perfectly awake? There are qualities of mood. I'm excited. I'm already bored. To be a Buddhist is to be bored, by the way. But there might be that. So, instead of returning to the breath, like we do in concentration practice, with going back to the anchor, in this case, we do a different practice. When something very present, a mood or a thought appears, a very large mental experience 
like an iceberg out of the fog appears, we first rely on the R of the acronym RAIN, and that means we just recognize what is it. Just put a very simple label. The simplest label, don't think about it, just the first label that pops into your mind. Thought, feeling, emotion. Sadness, if you want to be more descriptive. Happiness. Tiredness. Whatever is present, just give it a label. That is essential because it, it, the labeling keeps us from identifying and falling into whatever is visiting us. It keeps us enough outside that we can observe. So recognize. Give it a name. Simple label. Just know what it is in the simplest way. Don't overthink it. If you can't think of a word, just know, okay, something is present. Don't agonize about giving it the right name. So A is allow. This is going to be probably the most awkward of the four processes, which are, you know, because our tendency is when something inconvenient, a feeling of loneliness, missing someone, longing, or resentment, our tendency is so much to either climb inside it and really feed it, or to push it away. I don't want to think about this right now. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to know this. I don't want to be with this. I just want to be happy. I drove a long way yesterday. Damn it. I'm here in a really beautiful place and I don't want to feel anxious. I don't want to feel confused. I don't want to feel doubt. And instead of pushing it away or completely climbing into this worldview, we allow it. Allow it to be there. Allow it to arise. Don't get rid of it. Don't become it. Just allow it. This gift takes a lot of practice. Because if for so many years we've been relating to certain kinds of emotions in terms of I've got to repress or identify, and those are my two options, to open up a third possibility, which is how can I be with, without becoming this state, or without getting rid of this state, that alone can take quite a while. Again, the simplest way to allow is pull your attention away from the thoughts and go back to the body. How does this experience feel in my breath? How does it feel in my body? If you do that, that's the easiest way to allow even the most painful memory or fear to be present without pushing it away or without identifying it. You can have a fear of losing someone, not ever connecting, a fear of uh, losing one's mind, anything. Losing our ability to be self-sustaining. And instead of figuring it out, or answering it, or getting into the debate with it, or trying to get rid of it, we simply, okay, when this fear, this thought, this unpleasant memory, this, this uh, experience arises, how does it affect my breath? How does it affect my body? And as we do this, we move fully into the I brain, which is investigate. We investigate how does each experience affect everything in our present time, body-mind. When this 
feeling of loneliness, sadness, or disappointment in life, or excitement arises, not only how does it affect the breath, and what does it do to my belly, and my throat, and my chest, and the muscles in my arms, but what kind of feelings arise? Is there this feeling of just wanting to push and get away, or to scream, or to... What feelings? Is there this desperate feeling of, no, I don't want to be with this? Or is there this strong feeling, yes, this is the truth, this is the absolute truth? Investigate how does every emotion, every memory, every thought, every plan, every mental event you have, back to the body, back to the breath, back to the way it affects feelings, back to the emotions it creates, not trying to argue with it in thought, not trying to figure it out in words or in a chatter. And then, finally, and in the original schema of the RAIN practice, and stood for something else, stood for non-identify, which I think is kind of lame, because I think in recognizing you're already doing that. So I've changed it, because I can do that, damn it. So I call and nurture, which means finally when you have felt the feelings and the breath and known the emotions behind each memory, plan, thought, feeling, fear, then send it meta, send it care. I love you. I'll take care of you. I care about you. It doesn't matter how ugly or aggressive or frightening or monstrous, whatever arises, treat it with love and care. One of the most wonderful stories in the Buddhist canon is the Buddha's teaching of the uh, anger-eating demon. The Buddha talks about how Saka, this lord, leaves his throne, probably on vacation, and while he's away, well, the guards aren't looking, an anger-eating demon runs and hops on Saka's throne and sits there. And of course, the guards of the palace are furious and they poke the demon with sticks and they insult it and with every word and every shout and every poke and every attempt to get rid of it, the demon gets loud, louder and louder and larger and it starts billowing smoke and flame and it starts roaring and bearing scary fangs and it becomes impossible to be with. And so, when Saka returns, all of the guards are cowering outside. And when he hears of what's occurred, he goes in and he does something that none of the guards had thought to do. He simply says to the demon, Welcome. Relax. Can I get you a stool to put up your feet? Can I bring you some tea? Can I offer you some tasty delights? In other words, rather than greeting this demon with anger, which makes it stronger, the kindness makes the demon get smaller and smaller and smaller until Saka can simply lift it up, this now tiny demon, and put it down and return to his throne. And what is that but a metaphor for the way we relate to our fear, our sadness, our anxiety? Instead of greeting it with, go away, I can't have you, you're not allowed, the end, the nurture, is welcome. I'll take care of you. Can I make you comfortable? We don't act it out, but we no longer greet it as an unwelcome passenger in the mind.
So those are the two practices we'll be working with today. Melissa at seven will give more advanced instructions on Vipassana. But for this upcoming time today, choose whether you'd like to work entirely with an anchor, using the anchor, keeping it in mind, knowing whether you're breathing in or out, while you're walking, knowing, am I on my left foot or my right foot? And then breathing or walking in a way that soothes the body, eases the body, calms the feelings, gladdens or brings a sense of safety to the mind. Or the RAIN practice, not keeping the breath in mind, staying open to the present moment and when a thought, a feeling, a memory, a plan arises, Recognize it. Give it a label. Simple. First thing that comes to mind. Allow it. Don't get rid of it. Don't run from it. Investigate it. How does it feel in the breath, the body? Nurture it. I'll take care of it. You're allowed. You can be here. You don't get to run the show, but you don't get pushed away again. So, you run over. <laughs> I thought we have until 10.30. I think so. Yeah, we do. Okay, well, then I need to make a quick announcement. Um, interviews will start at 11. Yeah. Josh will be in Diamond House. Melissa will be in reception where you checked in. I have somebody who arrived late, so I have to go and get them. So, yeah. um, so we're just going to do a, big, a brief practice. Um, so I'm going to give you a brief example of this to find a really comfortable seat so closing the eyes And let's just know what is the experience right now. Just a general sense of tired, bored, an impulse to move, a desire to return to bed. Already hungry for lunch, wondering what's going on elsewhere, so finding our anchor, whether it's a metaphrase, I like, I love you, keep going, or may I be peaceful, may I feel safe whatever phrase you like. Or knowing whether you're breathing in or out. Or using the sounds of the wind. So if you're using the breath, or using meta, to see if you can use that anchor as a way to calm the body. For instance, breathing all the way in, feeling the breath energy moving up from the floor into the body, all the way up, feeling the energy fully inhabiting and then releasing feeling all the muscles letting go with the out breath all the way down until the breath energy goes back into the ground 
almost like we're a plant soaking in life from the earth, just feel the body expanding and growing with the in-breath and then releasing, slightly softening, subsiding with the out-breath. And if you're tired, change the breath, hold the in-breath four, five, six beats longer. You can even, while you breathe in, open one eye and close it while you're holding and breathing out. So using the breath as a way to change subtly our experience. You can use breathing as a foothold to observe the busyness of the mind, how many thoughts, how much inner chatter, how many mental images are flowing through. Think of the breath as a place you sit by the river, a place that's secure, a place where you won't fall in. And the river, the spot you're looking at, is what's ever going on in your mind. And what's flowing through the river are feelings, sensations, images, chatter, ideas. And you're just sitting on the breath you're sitting on metta and you're watching as all these experiences flow by. Right now the mind seems very busy. Right now it seems very quiet. Now if you're in your first for a second retreat, just keep working with this experience, using the breath as a safe anchor, a safe place to observe your experience. And if you've done a number of retreats, then you feel that your practice has been very steady of late. Let go of knowing whether you're breathing in or out or holding the metta, and just allow your awareness to drift freely in the present, knocking up against sensations and feelings, and subtle shifts and mood. Eventually something large compelling will appear. Perhaps an entire story about a previous experience in life or thought about the retreat. A fantasy travel plan, what will I do on Sunday when I get back? Whatever, a kind of parade in the mind of words and images and they want you to join in the parade and march away from the present and just Recognize it. Oh, there's planning. Just allow the parade to march through. Don't join it. Don't blockade it. Just allow it to 
pass through. And as the parade passes through with all the sounds and images and chatter in the mind, the story about the past or the future, the likes and dislikes, just see how does all this hoopla affect the breath, the body, basic feelings. Does my mind feel open and spacious or does it start to contract and feel tiny and small? And if you do find yourself being whisked away, caught up in a thought, kidnapped, some teachers refer to it as getting hooked, like a fish. Don't add any frustration. Just when you reawaken, feel good. I'm back. I'm back here. And then just swim back to your anchor, the breath, metta. Get a foothold back in the present. Feel good. You're developing mindfulness. And then once you feel you're steadily back in present time awareness without judging anything, without resisting, without avoiding, then you can once again let go of your safe anchor, the breath, and push yourself back off into all the sensations. And once again, greet life and life's turn. Finally, when some experience might be known. If it feels appropriate, nurture, care for, befriend the demon. I care about you. I care about my anger. I care about my sadness. I care <coughs> about my grief. I care about my loneliness. I care about my longing. I won't push you away. I'll give you a safe place to be felt. time comes to leave each meditation, take a moment to, one, always acknowledge your efforts. It doesn't matter whether it goes easy, or it's difficult, whether you found your mind getting hooked and hijacked by dozens of thoughts, or you manage to stay present and aware. We always greet each practice with positive recognition. There's no room for self-punishment or judgment in this practice. Just recognition for your efforts. A feeling of gratitude that you've taken the time to develop awareness to develop a source of peace that's unconditionally available. And when we end each meditation and it becomes time to open your eyes, try to always do that as slowly as you can so that sight, which is a very dominant sense, has a tendency to push 
all of the awareness of the body and the breath and feelings and background sounds and moods, everything that you've reconnected with can be pushed out of awareness simply by opening up the eyes quickly and looking around. So try to get the practice of very slowly integrating sight back into all of the awareness you've cultivated, integrating it strategically. Taking the entire length of the sound to open the eye. Thank you.